Hey, welcome to the 107th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the legendary MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode stars Eric Sherman, one of the country's most prolific sports authors. And along with co-writing the autobiographies of Mookie Wilson, Steve Blast, Davey Johnson, and just recently, Met legend Art Shamsky. Back in the mid-1990s, Eric worked on the autobiography of Glenn Burke, the openly gay former Dodgers outfielder who died of AIDS as the two were collaborating. There are a million things to discuss us right now with one of my good friends in the business and it's coming to you on two writers sling and yang all right eric first of all thank you so much for doing this oh now the pleasure is all mine jeff and i, I just want to say before i start so this is a, i don't know the hundred something episode and i've had different people i've known for long times i've had different people i've known for short times but you and i have a very unique relationship in that we probably lived all told about a quarter mile from each other in new york and I actually made a list. This is kind of interesting. I would say within a quarter mile span before I moved to California, we had me, we had you, we had Nick Gregory, the Fox 5 meteorologist. We had Andy Dallas, Rachel Maddow's producer. We had Christopher John Farley, who was at the Wall Street Journal and now is at Audible. <laughs> we had Sharon Epperson, his wife from CNBC. And we had Orly Moskowitz, who's a uh, producer for Penguin Random House. We lived in basically the suburban media mecca of new york i think we can make that oh, argument no no question about it uh it was a literary alley you know i mean <laughs> and i mean it was i mean you lived literally around the block i mean i could have cut through uh andrew dallas's backyard and been you know right across the street from you so um yeah we we were extremely close I feel like you're saying that as a hypothetical because you actually did cut through Andy Dallas's backyard. So it's not like you could have. You actually did on multiple occasions. Sure, I did. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about something interesting, and I, I can't actually remember what the circumstance was. But I don't know, 10 years ago, we met up at a Starbucks. Uh, yep. Somehow, I don't know if you knew I was a writer or whatever or, or whatever. And you came, and I think you were – I don't know if you were seeking my advice. I have no idea. But, like – at the time, you were, you were, I would say, I don't know if you were a frustrated writer. You were a relatively unknown writer. You hadn't, you'd written one book. It was, it was Glenn Burke's autobiography. What were you looking for at that point when we met? Do you remember? Oh, I remember the day like it was yesterday. Uh, so we had another neighbor named uh, Lord, uh, Morty Lippman, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he had just, moved in but uh, if you recall morty knew everybody in the neighborhood oh yeah uh, within six months after moving to new rochelle mm -hmm. um so anyway i mean i i knew who you were i mean you know you you know even 10 10 years ago um i mean you 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 had all, already written one of my favorite all-time books uh, uh the bad guys one uh which was a terrific book on the 86 mets Thanks. Um, so you're, you're welcome. And, you know, so when I heard that you were a neighbor, I'm like, this is incredible. Jeff Perlman. So, um, at the time when I went to the Starbucks, um, I was in the midst of working with Steve Blass, the former Pirates pitcher, mm -hmm. uh, in which, you know, he had this, uh, this terrible condition, you know, he, he was an all-star pitcher and a world series, uh, he, hero. And, and then in his 10th season in the ma major leagues, he develops this malady where he can't throw the ball straight. Hence Steve blast disease became a part of the American lexicon. And I needed, um, a literary agent. And so Morty said, well, you know, Jeff Perlman is at Starbucks. Uh, on North Avenue every, every day. That's and true. I'm like, yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm like, well, am I really going to like, you know, stalk this guy and like, and like hang out and like wait until he's in Starbucks or, you know, wait until he leaves or just like, 
you know, sit down with them, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you didn't know me from a hole in the ball. And so, but I did it. Um, I, I walked over to you, I introduced myself and you were kind enough, not only, uh, to refer me to your literary agent, but also, um, you know, you gave me, uh, 10 minutes worth of advice. And the advice that you ga- gave me was you have a very short time to grab the reader's attention. So that first paragraph or two of, of any, you know, chapter one or any chapter for, the, for that matter really has to grab the reader's attention. And you knew that I read, um, the bad guy guys one. Uh, you, you learned that I had read your, you know, your uh, boys will be boys. Uh, the, you know, the book on the Dallas Cowboys. Um, and that's what you do. I mean, like that's your, the, you know, you, you grab the reader's attention immediately with, with a major highlight of, of the story that you're writing about. And, and that was great advice because I definitely need, needed it. And you said I could send you a chapter that I had written on Steve, Steve Blass and, and, you know, you did a great job of critiquing it, but in a, in a very nice, nice way. And, um, and I still follow your advice today. I mean, you really were a tremendous in, influence. I mean, you know, I'm working on my seventh book now and, um, and they're all with legitimate publishers. And I, I definitely have you in part to thank for that, Jeff. I just want to say, so that I feel like that question and that answer makes me sound a little bit like Donald Trump trying to get someone to fawn over me. And I did not mean it that way. I honestly couldn't remember because your career is freaking fascinating to me. Like it is, I'm not just saying that like fat. It's like, wait a second. What the hell happened here? Like, this is amazing. Like we met, you were sort of, I don't know if I'm sure you, you had this Glenn book, Burke book, which you told me about right. earlier. In fact, I, I want to go right there from the beginning. I was reading your bio and you know, you, your bio online, you, you started writing, uh, sports at 14 years old for a local paper in your hometown of Westwood, New Jersey. You started freelancing. You went to Emerson College. And then you write out at home with Glenn Burke, openly gay baseball player who died of AIDS. Um, and it's kind of, it's always interested me. Like, it's kind of this thing that sits there like, oh, yeah. And he wrote this book with Glenn Burke, this famous tragic figure. I don't even know how that happened. Like, how does a guy... Because usually that's the kind of thing. Oh, some guy's been writing books for 15 years and he goes up to Glenn Burke and Glenn Burke says, well, who are you represented by? Like, how did that even happen to you? The, the, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's an incredible story be, because I was I was 28 at the time um, and I had never been published. Um, but I'm on the train going to work. I, I had a sales job in technology and and I and I'm reading the New York Times and there's a a headline, uh, that winter had come early. I think the headline was for Glenn Burke, who was dying of AIDS. And, and, and I had vaguely remembered a sport magazine article written by Michael Smith, who was Glenn Burke's, uh, partner. Um, he was very well, well, well educated. And, uh, I think he was, uh, Harvard ed- educated and, and, uh, and so Glenn Burke was kind of his arm piece. You know, Glenn Burke was this sculpted, you know, beautiful athlete played for the Dodgers. And, um, and, uh, so he wrote this story how Glenn was blackballed from the game. You know, really once the Dodgers found out that he was gay, then he went to Billy Martin's A's and, and Billy, you know, said, well, no faggot's going to play for my team. And, and then his life just went on this downward spiral. Where he ended up homeless and desolate, in prison, then dying of AIDS, and you know, this guy that played in the '77 World Series against Reggie Jackson's Yankees, all all of a sudden was dying of AIDS at age 42, and I'm like, you know, this is a really great story, and so I put together a book proposal. I sent it out to a woman named Pamela Pitts, who was his care- caregiver from the Oakland A's. What year uh, was this? Supporting him. Eric. What year was uh, this? Yeah, 1994. Okay. Um, so, um, I submitted a book, book proposal, uh, sent it to her and, uh, she said, well, you know, she did, she called, called me back and she said, you know, he's received 17 other book proposals and four, uh, movie offers for his life story. 
So I didn't think anything of it. And then about a week and a half later, she called me and she said, you know what? He liked yours the best. When can you come out here? He doesn't have much time. So that weekend, I got a flight out to Berkeley, California. I went to see him. Um, I was able to get a literary agent. We got a deal with um, a small publisher, Taylor Publishing out of Texas. They were the only one that wanted to do it. We do you remember how much you made for your first book deal? Uh, well, um, the offer that we got was $6,000, That's awesome. but it was the only offer. And, and then the baseball strike hit and they withdrew the offer because no one was doing baseball books in 1994 and 95 because of the strike. Even though this had very little to do with baseball, it transcended that. Well, anyway, so, uh, the last time I saw, saw Glenn, you know, I told him that we had lost the publisher, but I said to him, look, um, you were nice enough to, you know, in, in pain, I mean, crying every 10 minutes and from the pain, the agony of, of AIDS, AIDS was really, I mean, it was different back in 1994 than it is today. He was really su- suffering. And so I said to him, look, if, if we can't get another pu- publisher, um, I will self publish this. My agent left me. He said, you're opening yourself up to get sued. If anything he says isn't true. And I did it anyway. So it fast forward to 2011 and I get a call from Comcast and they're doing a documentary on Glenn, Glenn Burke. Then the story came alive again. Then Jamie Lee Curtis, she called, calls me and she goes, look, I just read your book on Glenn Burke. I love it. I want to do a movie. Two other producers called me the same, same week, same thing. Then Three years later, Penguin Publishing, which I had already done three books with, they want to, you know, republish it. And so, you know, so it, it just took on a life of its own. And so that was the first book. And now I'm working on my seventh in the last 10 years since the day that we met at Starbucks. It, my, my life has been completely surreal with the experiences that I've had and, and, you know, the people I've written books with and books about. Um, it's just been an, an incredible ride, Jeff. Did you know what you were doing? Like you fly out to Oakland. Okay. I'm going to write this book with you no matter what. Did you then, I don't know, turn on a tape recorder and just tape for hours. Like, did you even know what you were doing? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I had my que- que- questions ready. Um, I, you know, I did as much research as I possibly could. Um, you know, when Glenn had to rest, I would go across the Oakland Bay Bridge to the San Francisco Pub- Public Library. This was before the internet. Um, and I would, you know, pull up and print out as many articles as I could find and, you know, write questions that night, then go back and see Glenn the next morning. And, um, and, uh, and we would generally work until about three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and I would come back and I would do it, do it the next day. And, I stayed out there about a week, week and a half. And, you know, it's, it's not a long book. I, I think it's only like 130, 30 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his career was relatively short. Um, but there was a lot of meat there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the Do- Dodgers basically offered him a year's salary to marry a woman. Um, you know, so this is coming from the front, front office and, and Tommy Lasorda's son was a cross dresser and Glenn yeah. became friends with him. I mean, there was a lot there and, um, I'm kind of surprised that I wasn't sued in a way, you know, but, but I, as I found out in the Comcast documentary, all those years later, all of his teammates, uh, and sports writers and anyone involved with the Dodgers back in the late seventies, they all backed up everything that I wrote in that book in Glenn's voice. Um, so after all the, those years, I mean, you're talking 15 years later, I was always thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe someone might sue, sue me here if Glenn got something wrong. And, uh, but Glenn had nothing to hide. You know, he, he was dying. He just wanted you know, to get the truth out. And I wanted to get the truth out for him about the injustice of a man's baseball career being taken away from him uh, because of his sexual orientation. I, I just thought it was so unfair. What was it? Um, I've certainly never had this experience. I mean, what was it like 
writing a book with a man who was dying and then ultimately he died in 1995. So it was around the time you were still working on it. Uh, what was yeah. that like emotionally? Uh, it's life changing. Um, I remember I got to the airport. I called my mother and I, I, I said to her, you know, every high school student should experience some time with a, with a person dying of AIDS. Um, because if they ever had a thought of having unprotected sex or, or using a needle or anything, anything like that, they should experience what I've been experiencing. Um, I told Glenn probably three dozen times, look, we don't have to go on here. We, you know, we can stop. Um, and, uh, and he would, you know, bring himself back together again and, and we would continue onward and until we were done. And, and then when we were done, he said, Hey, I I have something for you. I'm like, I mean, this was a guy that had nothing like his, his room. It was just, it was just pills and there was a fan on one side of his bed, a space heater on the other. And that's all he had. And he said, look in the closet. I, I have a, a gift for, for you. And it was his baseball bat from when he was with the Dodgers. Uh, wow. and he said, I want you to have it. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. I'm in my office. Um, and it's the bat that he used with the Dodgers. And, uh, so it's one of my most prized possessions along with a, baseball that he signed for me that he inscribed have a nice life. Wow. That's amazing. You know, one thing that's fascinating about Glenn Burke, he did not have a particularly, I don't think I've ever looked this up before. I literally have his baseball stats in front of me. He played in uh, 225 games over four years, you know, two home runs, 38 RBIs, hit two, uh, what do you hit? 237. Um, Right. Like not a great player, kind of a below average major league ball player. Was that, is this a guy who, who could have been really good, but sort of was dealing with something so large and so unprecedented? Or was he just an average major league baseball player? No, I mean, he was the number one prospect in the Dodgers organization. And back in those days, that was an organization that just churned out oh, yeah. one rookie of the year after another. And, uh, the players loved him and, but yeah, he was dealing with a lot. Um, but he was a five tool player. And, um, if, if you Google, uh, you know, and you find the, you know, the scouting reports on him and I mean, scouts just gushed over his talent. Um, I mean, the, there, there was one scout that said he had Willie Mays type of talent and, and he certainly had Mays's build. Um, in fact, he was probably identical and I'm, I'm not by any stretch comparing him to Willie Mays, but I'm just saying that there was a scout that said he had Willie Mays type potential, um, cause he could do it all. And, and he was also a spectacular basketball player. Um, you know, easily could have started in, well, at least made the NBA and probably start in it. Um, that was his better sport actually. And right. that was the one regret that he had in his life that, you know, with everything he had to deal with in baseball, um, he feels like maybe he would have been be- better accepted in basketball. Do you feel like Glenn Burke comes along in 2019? He's playing for the Dodgers. He's openly gay. Uh, does it work or is baseball still so conservative? It, it's a, it's a problem. It works today. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it definitely works. Um, you know, you had my Michael Sam, uh, um, Jason you know, Collins. You, you, Jason Collins. Thank you. Yeah. He, he didn't come right to mind, but you know, so you know, you've got, um, um, gay mi- minor leaguers here and there that are out and, um, the games really change. You have Bill, Billy Bean, not the GM, but right. the former pl- player that's come out. He's now working for maybe major league baseball. And, um, it, it's just, I mean, it's different than, I mean, society is different than it was even six or seven years ago. I mean, President Obama, you, you know, everyone, you know, looks at him, especially compared to President Trump, you know, as, 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 as so liberal. Well, you know, I mean, President Obama six or seven years ago, you know, was opposed to gay marriage. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, and now he's changed. I mean, society's really, really changed. So yeah, I, I don't think it would be a big deal. Would there be, the occasional, um, you know, bench jockeying from the stands, perhaps, but right. I don't even think so. 
you know, I, I think he'd be fine today. Right. So you've written, uh, as you noted, you've written six books. You works, you work on your seven and, um, you wrote Glenn Burke's autobiography with Glenn. You wrote Steve Blass's autobiography with Steve Blass. You wrote Davey Johnson, the former Met manager and Orioles second baseman, uh, with Davey. And you wrote Mookie Wilson with Mookie and, oh, and Archamsky, excuse me, uh, your most recent after the miracle with Archamsky. Um, when you were writing autobiographies, how much when you were sitting down and writing, do you think about capturing their voice or do you just write and sort of hope that your time spent with them works? Like, are you, are you consciously thinking of words? Are there certain words Mookie used, Mookie used a lot? So you use them a lot or Davey uses a lot and use a lot or are there certain ways they speak that you try to put into the pages or is it more of just writing and trying to get across what they are trying to get across message wise? Yeah, I mean, it just comes because, um, I transcribe every single word. Well, I record all, all the interviews, of course. Um, and it's transcribed. Uh, and so it's there. I used to transcribe everything on my own. Um, I've stopped doing that in the interest of time, but yeah, insanity uh, and sanity and sanity. Yeah. And, you know, my, uh, and my neck and my back and all that stuff. But yeah, what you end up becoming that person as you write their story. Um, like you were saying, uh, King, Kings of Queens, life beyond baseball with the 86 Mets. other than, well, yeah, actually after the miracle is in Archamsky's voice. So Kings of Queens was the only book I've written so far. In addition to the one I'm writing now on the 86 Red Sox, which are actually in my voice, all the others were with the subject that I was writing their autobiography and you become them and you hear them through talking through countless hours uh, listening to countless recordings, reading the transcripts two, three, four times, writing, rewriting, and you become them. I mean, Davy Johnson would always say to me, uh, you know, Eric, you can't make this shit up. You know, we actually thought about calling the book. You can't make this shit up. Um, that's how often he would say, say that phrase. Um, you, you know, Mookie had his thing. Steve, Steve Blass had his, um, Glenn, Glenn Burke. I, you know, two people couldn't be any more different than Glenn Burke and I, you know, Glenn, Glenn Burke, you know, he grew up in the hood in Oakland. Um, he's African American. I'm a white kid from the suburbs, um, straight, you know, I mean, we couldn't be any more different, but I swear while I was writing his book, I was Glenn Burke. You know, I had his swagger and his and his way and his style and um and you become that person. Uh you can't help it. So I hope that answers your qu- question. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. you absolutely do and and one of the best compliments that I get again and again is you know, people will come up to me uh especially after that Steve Blast book and uh, you know, Pirates fans will say, "My god, it was like I was having a beer with Steve in his backyard and he's telling me his life story. I heard that countless times um, with Steve's book and, you know, because the fans really get to know Steve there because he's, he's been their analyst for like 35 years. So he's uncle Steve in Pittsburgh. And so I really captured his voice. And uh, um, so that's the highest compliment because that's the goal. You know, to so it really sounds like they're telling the story. Are you all right? So, as an example, I, I wrote uh, Boys Will Be Boys about the Dallas Cowboys. And, yep, uh, one day I'm talking to Darren Woodson, the old safety, and he kind of drops a hint about Michael Irvin stabbing a teammate in the neck with a pair of scissors. And yeah. then I asked someone else about it, and I asked someone else about it, and I'm I'm trying to get them to open up about it without revealing my excitement about them opening up about it. You know, it's a game. It is a game. And it's a little bit of, it's not trickery because you're not being dishonest, but you are trying to get them to talk about something they probably haven't talked about before and maybe don't want to talk about. And I wonder when you were writing a book with somebody, is there any of that? Or is it completely whatever you want to talk about? Just let me know and I'll put it down. Or are you trying to fish out stuff from them as well? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, sir, certainly, um, I mean, if, if you're going to write a book, you have to be obsessed 
with the topic. So you know a lot about the people that you're writing about or with. Um, so, you know, you're certainly going to uh, try and get more details about something that you already know about. Like when I interviewed Lenny Dykstra, uh, which was the most bizarre interview I've ever had, you know, there, there were certain elements, you know, he had just gotten out of prison and, and I want to know about that. And, um, but what I have found, and I don't know if this is common or not, or if I'm easy to talk to, or if they trust, but, but I mean, I regularly have these ball players, you know, just empty their hearts to me. And, uh, you know, this Red Sox book that I'm doing now, uh, three or four of the guys, you know, broke down and started crying a couple of times. I had Dwight Gooden, you know, start, start to break down when I was with them. Uh, but, you know, Wade Boggs, Bruce Hurst, I mean, these guys, they, they really get emotional and, um, and it's very revealing. And, um, you know, it's almost like, my God, is this guy going to get fired? You know, I, there, there, there was a, um, Mets, well, I'll tell you who it was. It was Wally Backman. And, uh, there were some things that he told, told me that I, I put in the book, but I'm like, are you sure? You know, I mean, right. he was coaching the trip or he was managing the triple A team, team of the Mets. And I'm like, you know, I just want, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, it's okay. You know, put it in Mookie Wilson, an ambassador for the Mets. Are you sure? You know, I was sure that these things were going to, that the, what they were telling me, we're going to get them fired. So, so let me ask you something, Jeff. Um, mm -hmm. if, so they let me go, go ahead and, you know, write it. Not that I was asking for permission, but I'm like, are you sure, you know, that you want to tell me this? Um, you know, if, if someone worked for a team and you're interviewing them and they tell you something so inflammatory, that, you know, you're pretty sure it's going to cost them their job. Um, is there a way that you would handle that? Um, would you wow, say you sure? <laughs> that's really interesting. If I know it's going to cost, I'm not looking to get anyone fired over a book. Mm -hmm. I've, I've never had that happen before. I mean, I certainly fish for information. Like I said, so, you know, like, um, you know, the example I use a lot is, um, is, uh, when I had a defensive back from the Cowboys tell me about Charles Haley taking out his penis and putting it across the desk during meetings. And yeah. then I, I'm asking one after another cowboy about it because I want to get as much information as possible because it's sort of this crazy example. And you know, Charles Haley is not a not going to like it and B, it's not really going to portray him well. And it's going to cause right. some embarrassment for him. And I do not feel great about that, but I do. My freaking juices get going at the same time. Like I, it's sort of a pursuit of finding the most telling information you can. I don't know. I don't know. Actually, the thing is, I've never written a book with someone. Although you weren't writing it with Backman, but I mean, if I were writing a book with someone, I'd certainly, certainly, certainly would say, listen, just so you know, this is really going to get you in trouble. But I do assume most of these guys are adults. And sort of know what right. they're saying, I guess. I don't know. That's toughy though. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, uh, that's a so I, I mean, like there's a part, part of me that, well, you know, this guy's giving me their time, but, but I've never not written anything that I've gotten in any interview that I thought was newsworthy. But there, there were a couple of times, like I said, I'm like, wow, you know, are you sure? Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's working as a lifeguard this summer. So, Casey, how do you feel about cross-promotional opportunities? What's that? So you work as a lifeguard at the local pool, right? You know I do. Okay, and when someone's drowning, what are you supposed to do? First, I blow my whistle three times. <whistles> then I say, my name is Casey. I'm a certified lifeguard. Then, if I need to, I throw in a floaty. Okay, new plan. Someone's drowning. You blow the whistle. <whistles> Then you yell, hey, you're drowning, and that sucks. But have you ever dreamed of owning a Vince Ferragamo Montreal Alouettes jersey? Because 503 Sports is the sponsor of my dad's podcast, and they sell all sorts of throwback sports merchandise. Go to 503-sports.com for more information. Wait, but isn't the person going to drown? Eh, no one's perfect.
How do you, you're, you're, you're sitting there, you're working on this Red Sox book, you have guys crying in front of you. What do you feel like you are doing to get people to open up to you? Um, I think that they know that they're talking with someone that did their homework that really knows the subject. Um, I get the sense that pro- probably a lot of people that have interviewed them over, over the years might not, um, you know, have, have the knowledge of their careers, um, of, of their teams, their personal backgrounds. Um, and I think that they also have a sense that I really care, um, that I'm not just looking for a story. Um, I'm, I have empathy for, you know, for what, you know, for their ups and downs. Um, you but know, how do you, how do you, how do you show them you have like, all right. Wade Boggs. I have Wade Boggs' baseball reference page in front of me. You know, I can tell you exactly how many hits he had, how many, what his batting average was, when he won the World Series, what place he came in MVP. Uh, I know where he's from. Uh, I know how old he is. Like, what are you bringing to an interview with Wade Boggs? Well, I mean, uh, during, during the 86 season, I'm, I'm going to ask him about his mom. I'm going to ask him, you know, about his mom who was tragically killed in a car accident in the middle of the year and how that affected him. And, and, you know, when he was, uh, bawling his eyes out in the Red Sox dugout after the Red Sox lost game game seven, I'm, I'm going to ask him, you know, what was he thinking about at that moment? Why was he so upset? You know, uh, was he thinking about his mom? Was he thinking about how close, you know, the Red Sox were to ending the curse, um, that had existed since 1918, you know, and so, and I think I say it in such a way where they're, where they can tell that I'm empathizing and, and that really gets them to open up. And, you know, with, with Dwight Gooden, it was like, well, what were you thinking about when you were in prison? You know, um, uh, you know, did you think you, you could have been the greatest pitcher since Walter Johnson? And, and, um, you know, if you hadn't gotten involved in drugs and, and those types of things. And, and, and guys get really emotional about that. You know, they, these guys retire, um, as old, as old for baseball, but young men in the real world. And, um, and there's sadness. And in some cases, there's a regret. Um, so I think that's what makes them so, so emotional. Do you find, um, <clears throat> guys who are 20, 30, 40 years removed from their prime? look back at those days uh, with the fondness of someone looking back at a fraternity, as I sometimes use, or do you feel like there's a sadness over having the best days of your life come when you were 30 years old and never being able to replicate it? Oh, I think it's, and I think it's both. I, you know, these guys, I mean, you interview athletes all the time, you know, current, former athletes, if, if you ever come across a former athlete that tells you, um, oh, you know, I, I don't miss the roar of the crowd. I don't miss the life. They're lying to you. Every single one of these guys that I've interviewed, and there have been hundreds now, um, every last one of them suffers with retirement. Bruce Hurst, uh, I mean, he, you know, he almost won three World Series games against the Mets in 86. I mean, he, he went as far as, as to tell me for this book, you know, it gets to the point where I wish I had never played. Then I wish I had just gone and finished college and, um, and learned a, a trade and lived a normal life. And, you know, I went back and I checked and Bruce Hurst made something like $25 million in baseball. I mean, he's a wealthy man. Um, and yet he, he kind of wishes that he had a hundred thousand dollar a year job and, and had that kind of normal life instead of looking back because it's so hard when it ends. And that is profoundly accurate. I mean, I, I just think sometimes I do wonder when I'm dealing with athletes, retired athletes in particular, whether it's worth it because those seven, 10, six, five, whatever years of glory to be followed by 50 years of never getting that high again. Like you understand why Coke addicts are always looking for that first high. Because it's so powerful. And I feel like athletes, a lot of athletes struggle after their careers are over because they're also always looking for that high and it's impossible to get. 
Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Your your latest book was with Art Shamsky, the uh, former member of the 1969 Met. I had Wayne Coffey on uh, a couple months ago, and you and Wayne Coffey had 69 Met-related books come out right around the same time. And Wayne's a really good writer and great guy, and he's excellent as craft. Yeah. And I think there was a part of him that was really, he was kind of asking me, like, what are the keys to Twitter? And what are the keys, this kind of book and blah, blah, blah. And I came across an article, really simple article that ran in the News 12 Long Island website. Miracle Mets help celebrate Father's Day at Nursing Facility Bash. Yeah. <laughs> and there was Art Shamsky and Ed Crane Pool. I don't know if you were there. I sold a bunch of copies or, you know, at least hyped a bunch of copies and got people to go out and buy it later. When you're writing and prom- really promoting books about guys from 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. How do you sell that? How do you sell an Art Shamsky book? Who are you marketing that to and how are you going about it? Oh, well, I mean, we just have done as many uh, book talks and signings as we can. I mean, we, we've probably done uh, 20 bookstores. Um, we, and we, we always give a talk. I go up there for 10 minutes. It's like opening up for Sinatra because everyone's there to listen to art, not me. But, you know, I get up there and I tell them uh, how the book came, came about, how Art and I both wanted to do a 69 Mets book and how we had the same uh, a- agent and he put us together and and how we came up with the angle uh, to go out and see Tom, Tom Seaver and, you know, with some of Tom's te- teammates from that 69 team because Tom can't travel anymore because of Lyme disease and now dementia. Um, so we have a story. And so I get up there and I start and then art go, goes on for about 20 minutes and then we sign books. Um, but we, um, we go to where the fa- fans are. Um, and our demographic is probably age 50 and older. Um, and they're the most loyal, knowledgeable, fans uh that you can imagine um and i mean they're buying you know stacks of books you know we we we've done book signings where we've sold 3 and 400 books at one outing and and art is tireless i mean he will go i mean he's gone to synagogues he's gone to uh you know to to ball ballparks he did a signing in in new jersey at a ball ball ballpark park there uh you know, and he's not afraid to buy a box of a hundred books and bring them out there on his own. And, and that's what it takes. You know, art, art lives in New York. I live just outside of New York. Um, I, I mean, we did a book signing at, um, um, at outside of a grocery store, you know, um, it's, and, and you get people, you know, you, you use Twitter and you use Facebook, uh, on, on Facebook, there are at least 50, uh, Mets Facebook pages, you know, you utilize that. Um, it, it's incredible. Like you can't buy the advertising that Facebook will give you because you're going right to the heart of your audience. Um, there are all these 69 Mets websites, you know, um, Facebook pages, just like with the 86 team. And you, you know, you can't be shy. Like, like you wrote about in one of your, uh, columns a few years ago, you have to be a book whore. You know, yeah. you really do. You know, I, I mean, I remember a time when, uh, before your, uh, Lakers book showtime, when you went out to LA, uh, before and after a Lakers game and you were handing out cards of your book. Yeah. I mean, you have to do stuff like that. Um, people that can't make the so- signings, you know, you, you know, you have art sign a bunch of book plates and, and you know, you're, Sending out book plates through the mail. If someone bought a book uh, out in Oklahoma, you know, you could just send send them his autograph to put in the book. Um, so the, you, you use anything and everything to promote. Um, and social media has really made it a lot easier. Um, so that's how we do it. Um, we just don't turn down appearances. And uh, we've sold 15 books. And we've sold 400 books, uh, at various events. It's just, you just keep it going, you know? <laughs> Again, I entered books coming off of Sports Illustrated at a time when Sports Illustrated was, was big and blah, blah, blah. And that gave me this boost. 
And you did not have that boost. You just fucking busted your ass like nobody I've yep. seen. And I just love it. And I, and I agree with you. You know, I used to work with a guy named John Walters at Sports Illustrated, and he wrote a book about the UConn women's basketball team. This is way back when Shea Ralph was playing. He couldn't get a, he couldn't get a publisher. So he self-published. He flew down to the final four in San Antonio and stood on corners every day. And I think he sold 18,000 books standing on the corner at the final women's final four. What are the secrets of selling book? You freaking have no pride, call in every favor and you bust your ass. Like, isn't it kind of, isn't that basically what it is? Yeah. And you know, are, are there times when I'm on Facebook? I mean, we're Facebook friends. I mean, like there are times when I wonder if, you know, my God, you know, it's father's day on Sunday. Am I going to, you know, post uh, a book signing or a link to Amazon, you know, three times or four times this week <laughs> leading up to father's day. And, and am I a bigger whore if I do it four times or just two? And I, you know, but it's, it's weird. Like most of my Facebook friends I've never met, you know, they, they've read my books and, and they like it and they like it when I post a picture of me with, with Ed Cranepool and Jerry Kuzman and, and Tom Seaver and they they respond to that. And, um, and then they like to send me notes, you know, saying, wow, you know, I really love this book. It felt like I was back in 69 or 86 again. And, um, and so I have a little bit of a following going, going and, um, but you just any way you can do it, you know, and, and we've earned it, Jeff, because, you know, if you write a book, I mean, especially with you, I mean, I mean like you'll put three years into a book, you'll do five, six, 700 interviews. I don't do nearly that many, but I mean, I'm staying up till two, three in the morning. I mean, I still have a, reg- a regular job. Um, you know, I, I, I work from home, but after dinner, I become a writer. Um, so it, there's a lot of discipline that's involved and, um, and it's not easy, but I love it. And, um, every, every time after I finish one of these books, I say, well, you know, I'll take a year off, you know, I'll get back in shape. <laughs> Uh, I'll get some rest, but after a month or two, some yep. great book project come, 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 comes along and I'm re-energized and I'm ready to do it again. Totally. Totally. hundred percent. You mentioned that, uh, Lenny Dykstra uh, gave you the most bizarre interview you ever had. Do tell. Well, yeah, he, um, I, I met Lenny, um, in a boutique hotel in the Westwood section of LA uh, and, you know, right by UCLA. I mean, it was like a seven or $800 a night hotel. And, and Lenny was broke, you know, at that time. Um, of course he had the, you know, the confidence that he was going to be a millionaire again. I mean, he blew a hundred million dollars in 18 months. Uh, he was worth 70 and he blew through a hundred because he was trading options and all that stuff. And, uh, real estate, it blew up on him. I mean, it's, it's, it's been well do- documented what happened with Lenny, but I said to him, geez, you know, what are you doing here? And, uh, he says, well, you know, I'm, uh, and, and he went on Howard Stern a few months after our interview and he talked about it. You know, he said he was a gigolo and I'm like, come on, you know, you're not, yeah, yeah. You know, a thousand dollars and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so that's kind of how the interview starts out. And, uh, you know, it's, it it was just so bizarre. And, you know, I was so well prepared for the interview. You know, I had three or four pages of notes. Those questions and notes weren't worth the paper they were written on after about five minutes. He just completely took over the interview. I mean, just completely took it over and it was beautiful. I mean, there was nothing scripted about it. Um, none of my questions were in the book or anything, thing like that. I mean, he just, he just went, you know, he just went to town. He's, you know, he's taking out his laptop. He's taking a call from Charlie Sheen. Um, you know, and it, it was just, it was like that movie. What was it? Leaving Las Vegas or something uh-huh. where he, he was, he was just going a hundred miles an hour. And it was bizarre, but it was terrific because it it was just becoming a story all of its own. And it was Lenny. And anyone that knew Lenny 
you know, recognize this is how it goes with him. He just, he has no attention span, uh, but he's got a lot to say. And, um, you know, you can believe what, what, what you will, but, um, it was just a roller coaster. Yeah. Nice enough guy. And he's charming, you know, um, you know, despite, um, all, all, all the problems and the people he screwed over. Um, he was, um, he was a good guy with me at least. Um, so we spent like three hours together just talking and, uh, um, but yeah, that was wild. Yeah. He, uh, he's not my favorite. I mean, he's a, no, he's, he's he's a, he's a different kind of guy. Let me throw a last one at you here. You, uh, on May 27th, you posted a picture of you with Bill Buckner and you wrote this on Facebook, deeply saddened by the news of Bill Buckner's passing this morning. I met Buck through Mookie Wilson six years ago, and we'll get together with him on several of his trips to New York, including a year ago when this photo was taken of us following an extensive interview, likely his last, for my upcoming book on the 86 Red Sox. Buck was one of the finest people I've ever met, handling the error he made in the 86 World Series with dignity and class. What was your interview like with Bill Buckner? Well, um, like I had written, I I had met him on numerous occasions, probably seven or eight times. Um, I interviewed him the first, well, I, I met him the first time through Mookie when they were doing an event at a theater, uh, in Gramercy Park in New York. Um, and, uh, then I interviewed him for Mookie's book and then we met socially a bunch of times. The last interview, um, it was very different in the sense that he was talking a little slower. He had lost, I would say 20 pounds. Uh, he just wasn't completely himself. In fact, when the interview was over, um, the waiter came over and he asked me, is that Bill Buckner? I mean, and I'm like, yeah, he says, boy, you know, he, it, it didn't really look like him. You know, he's, is he well? And I'm like, well, you know, he's going through, um, some health issues now. And, um, so the interview was great. Um, he, um, he gave me everything that I needed. Um, his stories were very honest. Um, and, um, you know, he laid it out there on the line and, um, just very, um, poignant. Um, you know, and, uh, don't let anybody tell you that he ever got over that error because, uh, he said, no, there's still a big scar. Um, and, um, so, um, you know, I, hopefully he's, you know, resting in peace now because he's earned it. And, uh, it's just so profoundly unfair what happened to him because he, he, he was such a great guy in every sense. He was low key for such an aggressive athlete. Um, and, um, you know, 2,715 hits and, and the casual fan, what they think of when they think of Bill, Bill Buckner is that error. And, and it was just one of a parade of errors that the Red Sox had made both mentally and physically in that game. And it was only game six. You know, I mean, you know, the story, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just really, really sad, but we, it's, it was a wonderful interview. Um, like similar to our other interviews before and the talks that, that we had, um, you know, of course he's going to be honest, but he's just, he just wasn't afraid to go really, really deep with me on his feelings and his emotions and, and how baseball affected not just him, but his family, his wife and his kids. And, um, it's, uh, he's a wonderful guy. And, uh, you know, I was talking with Mookie the other day and, um, I actually broke the news to Mookie. Somebody texted me that Bill Buckner had died and, you know, quickly on my phone, I checked it out and it was just posted like 30 seconds before. And I called Mookie, you know, just to see if he knew and he hadn't heard yet. And, what was his um, reaction? A shock because I had lunch with Mookie about a month ago, uh, two weeks before, uh, Buckner passed. And, uh, and I asked him uh, about Buckner. You know, they had done one last signing. Buckner wanted to do one last one with Mookie. Um, they had, Give, you know, they, they had retired from doing signings together, but Buckner wanted to do one more with Mookie. 
And uh, I guess now Mookie knows why. But I asked Mookie over lunch. I, I said, so how's Bill Bill doing? You know, the last time I saw him, he, he had lost weight. And Mookie said, oh, no, no, he's doing much, much better. He's put his weight back on. And, you know, he's fine. And so Mookie was really um, shocked. He's like, what? You know, and then he asked me, what did he die of? And he said, well, you know, I said, well, dementia. You know, we knew that he had that. Um, but Mookie goes, you know, to die that quickly from dementia? And I'm like, yeah, I, I guess in his case, yes. And um, so, yeah, Mookie was shocked. I just think it's very interesting how Mookie Wilson had a deeper kinship, it seems, with Bill Buckner than any of the guys he actually won the 86 World Series with. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I would, you know, it's interesting. I never really looked at it like that. Um, yeah, I don't think Mookie, you know, Mookie um, was pretty close with Tim Tuffle, as you know, mm-hmm. on that team. Um, he respected a lot of those guys, but he wasn't particularly close. Um, but he became very close with Buckner. I mean, they um, they shared a lot together. Uh, and that error brought, brought them together. And, um, uh, you know, they both, uh, I mean, it, it's been well documented. They both made, uh, around a million dollars just from signing that photo over, over the years. Buckner put his three kids through co- college just by signing that photo of Mookie running up the line and the ball go, going through his legs. And, um, so, you know, I, I guess. He felt, well, he told, told me, you know, he said, well, if I'm going to take all this shit for that error, you know, I'm going to make some money off of it. And, uh, so I'm kind of glad he did. I mean, Mookie and Bill were kind of the modern day, uh, Bobby Thompson, Ralph Branca duo. Um, you know, they kind of made a a positive out of joy for one and misery with the other. Um, but yeah, they, they'll be joined together. Throughout history, for sure. Well, Eric, it's interesting. We started with Glenn Burke, 1972 Dodgers draft pick, ended with Bill Buckner, 1968 Dodgers draft pick. Uh, <laughs> your career has come full Dodger circle. Um, <laughs> listen, I appreciate you doing this so much. I just, I'm, I'm a really a huge admirer and uh, not just a fan of your work, but just you as a guy. And I, I really think I asked the question, but I think the number one reason people open up to you and ball players open up to you is because you just have a decency. And I think people respond to, to, to decency. Uh, thanks thank so much you. for doing this. Appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. I want to thank today's guest, Eric Sherman, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Eric on Twitter at by Eric Sherman, and that's Eric with a K. And visit his website at ericshermanbaseball.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.